The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, and we want to learn more of God. So uh, it's time to open the scriptures. So come with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're returning there. Uh, last week we were there at the beginning of chapter 5. We are looking at verses uh, chapter 5, 8 into the beginning of chapter 6. So if you haven't already, grab your Bible. It's on page 555. Now let me just, as you're turning there, remind you briefly of what Ecclesiastes is like and all about, actually, because where we were last week was something of an island in the midst of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is, I hope you have found and agree with me as I say, actually a very modern book, a very contemporary book that is speaking to the dilemmas and frustrations that are quite relevant for our modern world, even though these words were written some 3,000 years ago. They are incredibly relevant for our own time. What we are discovering in the book of Ecclesiastes is that Ecclesiastes is communicating this theme about life. That life without God, life without God is void of meaning and empty futile, unsatisfying, and perhaps even despairing. And this has been really challenging for us along the way, actually, because the book of Ecclesiastes is written not just to a world that is seeking to live without God in an attempt to convict them of the reality, know that God exists and you must live for Him to have true and a meaningful world, but it is also relevant for us who profess faith in God, who trust in Him, but who are yet oftentimes informed by, in ways that we're not even aware of, a secular world influencing our thoughts about life. And so what Ecclesiastes is doing is the preacher in Ecclesiastes has drawn a crowd together and is essentially saying, let us speak about life and its ways. Let's talk about life and the way to find meaning in it. And the book of Ecclesiastes explores different routes and then asks the question, if we pursue this route, if we come to the end of it, Will it ultimately satisfy us? And again and again, the Ecclesiastes answers, no, it won't. So, for example, we have seen in chapters 1 and 2, Ecclesiastes and the preacher taking us on the pursuit of wisdom. If we pursue enough wisdom and enough knowledge to gain intelligence, is that sufficient to provide ultimate meaning for us? And the preacher says, no. He also takes us on the route of pleasure in uh, chapter 2 and 3. If we go the way of pleasure to heap up for as much enjoyment for ourselves as we possibly can in our earthly life, will that ultimately give us eternal pleasure? The answer there was no. So he leads us into chapter 3, which actually gives the first positive me message of the book. And he says the real key to satisfaction in life, the real key to, to, to delight is understanding that there is a God and that we live before his sight. Our life should be seen as under heaven, not just under sun. And if we would live a meaningful life, we would know God and submit to his ways and the ways he orders our lives. But then he takes us back into chapter 4, showing us that there is injustice and oppression in this world to emphasize the point that ultimately the ways of this world and the rulers of this world will not give us peace because there is still yet injustice and oppression. Well, then in chapter 5, after a brief pause, we come again to another road to walk down, another pathway by which the world often communicates to us 
This is the way of real life. This is the way of fulfilling life. And this morning we walked down in Ecclesiastes 5, the road of affluence, wealth, material possessions, money. And the preacher will directly address this and show us that if we are living for money, affluence as our chief end, it will leave us wanting in the end. So it's helpful, isn't it, to know the conclusion before you walk down the road? But how we go about getting there is so essential. Because, again, as Christian believers, it is easy for us to say, yeah, I, I know that. And in fact, I know that Jesus talks about it all the time. But Ecclesiastes is perhaps pressing on a few points of tension in our lives, asking, no, are we really convinced? So we'll see that together. But let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures as we hear them this morning. Heavenly Father, we turn now to Your Word and we confess that it is the bread of life that we need to be sustained. Lord, we can fill our stomachs up with so much food, but there's only one food that ultimately satisfies Your Word of life. And so, Father, as You have so moved the book of Ecclesiastes to be recorded for us by the inspiration of Your Spirit, I pray, Lord, that that same Spirit would come upon me as I preach, would come upon us all as we sit under the Word, would come upon every one of us as we sit under its teaching to convict us, to challenge us, to teach us, to direct our hearts, and Lord, ultimately to lead us to Christ as the ultimate treasure. And so come now to bless the reading and hearing and proclamation of Your Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the Word of God. Ecclesiastes 5, at verse 8, under the heading, The Vanity of Wealth and Honor. This is the Word of God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb. He shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. 
For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Amen. The grass withers and flower fades. The word of God abides forever. So may he write its truth on our hearts. Uh, just a note for you. I have included in uh, your bulletin an outline of this chapter because uh, the book of Ecclesiastes here makes a form of structure of Hebrew poetry called a chiasm. The chiasm, you should think of a chiasm like a pyramid. What is helpful about a chiasm is that it makes it very clear the main point of this text. The way a chiasm works is that as you work upward, you reach a main point at the center, and when you work downward, you repeat the points that you made at first, just in a different way, so as to emphasize the direction of the main point of the passage. So, as we'll look through this together, there are actually, even though there are six, or sorry, five points, there's really just three, because two of them are repeated with emphasis. So you'll see this in the way we walk through the text together, but just to make the point of emphasis, I've given you that chiasm outline in your bulletin so you can see where we are, where we're going, and what this text means. Now, now I've given you that textual introduction. Let me say, doesn't Jesus speak about these same things all the time? In fact, this almost sounds like it's quoted from Jesus himself, who says in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. That's an emphatic statement, isn't it? You cannot serve both God and money. Ecclesiastes is first interested in the emptiness of living in the service of money as the ultimate end. So that we can understand what Jesus is saying when he says God and money are two masters that do not share. They demand ultimate allegiance. These two competing masters of our hearts are warring for us, if it were, we can say it that way. We need to understand the trial of wealth, the weight of gold, which has so much influence over our lives. It is amazing to think how many of our decisions are surrounded by, shaped by, influenced in some way about money. It's all over our life. The weight of gold bears upon us 
with great significance, but what about the weight of glory? What about God's greater glory? How does the weight of glory compare to the weight of gold in our life? The book of Ecclesiastes wants to walk us down this pathway so that we will then agree with the Lord Jesus and come to the same conclusion that it's not possible to serve both God and money. What does it look like? Well, the preacher is saying three things. And the first one we'll see, both in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, is that the love of money is a sad investment. The love of money is a sad investment. This is the inability of money to bring true and lasting happiness. You see a summary of that in chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10, which says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. What a clear statement that is, isn't it? The point then is expanded on in verses 8 through 12. And then also, actually at the end of the text, in chapter 6, verses 7 and 9. The same point is made in both places in a bookend fashion. But actually, let's start at the end. Let's go to chapter 6 and look at chapter 6, verse 7. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 7 says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What, what the preacher here is drawing together is he's saying, you have appetites in your life. You have an appetite. The similarity between food and money, we have an appetite for both. When we get hungry, we work to attain food, consume it, but then we get hungry again and the cycle repeats itself, right? We get hungry and then so on. The same is true of our appetite for wealth. The preacher is saying, we want, we work, we acquire, we're satisfied until dissatisfaction sets in, so we repeat. We work to acquire, we receive satisfaction, but only limited until we need it again. The desire rises up in us again. It doesn't matter how much we have. It doesn't matter how much money, how much possessions, how much wealth. We can always want more. That's why money is so constantly spoken of by the Lord Jesus as a potential idol because of the constant threat of diminishing returns. You can get, but it won't satisfy, so you'll want more. Diminishing returns means it's never enough. And money can be an idol in our life that is like that. More and more can be acquired, and yet less and less joy can be received. That's why the preacher is making the point that this is a sad investment. Living for the things of finances, living for the bank account, living for our earthly riches is a sad investment that leads to vanity. And it is vanity for two reasons, the preacher shows us. The first reason why living for money is a sad reality is because of what he says in verse 11. That people take our money. We have money, but then people take it. The preacher says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The phrase there in verse 11, they increase those who eat them, refers to other people who consume our wealth. That's what that means. It might be a tax-happy government. 
It might be over-entitled children. It might be those who are looking for a free ride from us. What's being highlighted here is that the more we have, the more other people want what we have. Your appetite to gather wealth is met by another person's appetite to keep you from keeping your wealth because they want it. Or, as the saying often goes, the more meat, the more mouths, the more resources, the more responsibilities. People want what we have. We can accumulate, but it will be taken. That's why it's sad to live for it. The second reason why comes out in verse 12. Second reason why the love of money is a sad investment comes out here, verse 12, namely that having more money adds to vexation, adds to keeping us up at night. Look at the contrast in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The contrast here is between the person who labors hard for their earnings and is tired as a result of their labors and is able to lay down and sleep at night in contrast to the person who does no work, lays around all day, and as a result, lays up all night because they did no work during the day. In this case, because they've spent their day filling themselves with lavish foods. It gives them, literally, the preacher says, a tummy ache. Their lavish food lines their belly and they've done no work during the day and so they lay awake at night. Or maybe it's because they're laying awake at night worried about the volatility of their wealth, the effectiveness of their employees, the profit and loss statements, their margins, looming lawsuits, unseen swings or crashes in the markets. The preacher is saying living for money as the ultimate aim brings greater distress in our life. Right? More money, more problems. The point is to emphasize that for as many advantages that are associated with wealth, there are plenty of disadvantages. And it's a sad thing, the preacher says, to have financial acquisition to be our chief end, or to put it in the words of John Rockefeller, who asked, when asked, how much money is enough money? He said, just a little bit more. But that's the same guy who would say later on, after amassing a lavish fortune, he said, I would give everything I have if I could go back to the experience of contentment and satisfaction on the days when I was earning $3 a week. Because money cannot bring ultimate satisfaction, the preacher says, this is a sad way to live. Money is a sad investment the love of money is a sad investment, but the second thing he makes the point of is saying the love of money is a bad investment. Not only is it sad, it is bad. It comes out two places, first in five, chapter five, and then in chapter six. More than just bringing sadness, it can actually bring you harm. That comes out, summary in chapter five, verse 13, where the preacher says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, which dismantles the notion that we often have that wealth only brings ease and comfort, right? Here you have a few scenarios that the love of money results in things which are harmful, even grievous. The first one is in verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14, that money is fleeting, 
It's here today and gone tomorrow. The emphasis here is that money gathered can be money lost. Specifically in verse 14, it's spoken of as pursuing a man pursuing a bad venture whereby he loses what he has acquired. And this in the specific example of a man who has children who considers the future but yet gambles it away on a bad bet, a foolish decision. That's not to say that it's ultimately foolish to try to diversify, earnings, save, and invest. But the point here is that it can be lost for as much emphasis that we place on keeping. It can be a bad thing to simply lose when then living for the vanity of money is painfully revealed when we're left with perhaps nothing. Or the second example of why money is a bad investment as an ultimate chief end comes out in verse 15. The preacher says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Now this is a widely known phrase then, isn't it? What do we say? You can't take it with you, right? You cannot take it with you. I don't think there's a preacher alive that has not used the illustration of the fact that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? Because it's an effective illustration. It's poignant, right? Nevertheless, it emphasizes in a forceful way this truth that Ecclesiastes is making, but also the Apostle Paul emphasizes in 1 Timothy 6, 7, he says, we brought nothing in the world and therefore we will take nothing out of it. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the wisdom of an inheritance and passing on to future generations, but as the individual chief end, if we have lived for it in this life, we will not possess it in the next. The way the English Puritans explain this is that they called themselves pilgrims in this world. They called themselves literally commuters to heaven. And when you're a commuter, you need to pack lightly. And the Puritans would say, we are on our way to our heavenly home and let us hold loosely to the things of this world. And Ecclesiastes would emphasize here, especially, especially the aim of money as the chief end. Let us not possess that. And so, Ecclesiastes is emphasizing that not only is the love of money a sad investment and sorrowful, it can also bring harm. And so as a result, you have the contrast. The center of the chiasm, as it were, in chapter 5, 18 through 20. This is the very heart of what Ecclesiastes is saying is here, calling us away from the allure of sorrows and pains of living for earthly material wealth, calling us to a living faith in God, to trust in God as a wise investment. Here is the description of a joyful life. Let's look at it together. Ecclesiastes 5, 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. But he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now that's really a, a sweeping summary about life, isn't it? That we are taught here to accept our lot in life. Whatever that lot may be. To accept our mortality. You have this very level-headed approach to life. 
work hard, enjoy the things that God has given you, find enjoyment in those things, take pleasure in the ordinary things of life. Seeing that they are from the hand of a sovereign God who is also a gracious Father. Trust God by enjoying His gifts with gratitude. Let me ask you, do you do, you do that? Aren't you overwhelmed by how busy everybody is? Right? All the time. This is the biblical equivalent of stopping to smell the roses, isn't it? Do you pause to just enjoy simple pleasures that are gifts from God? Pause in the midst of your busyness and the consumption of your schedule to say, this ordinary thing, this ordinary experience is a beautiful gift from God. I like to do that to walk around outside during twilight, right? Especially this time of year when things are blooming and just pause a little bit and say, what a glorious gift God has given in this ordinary experience of just walking around the grass. It's no big deal. And the times when you were able to gather with your family, the experiences of your life that just seem totally ordinary, they're no big deal, it might seem, are actually Ecclesiastes is encouraging you to see as the beautiful gifts of the Heavenly Father so that you should go about enjoying your life, eating and drinking and enjoying what God has given, giving praise to Him. Now, notice here that even wealth is listed in this experience of the enjoyment of life, which might cause you to pause and say, wait a second, I thought this whole section was about the dangers and the lures of the love of money, right? So why is wealth listed here? It seems like a contradiction. But the point is that everything God has given to us in our lives is to be enjoyed by us and used responsibly as long as we don't worship these things. Everything that God has given to you is a gift. It's all grace. And He calls you to use it in a way of stewardship. Even wealth. It's not that money is inherently evil, but rather that the love of it, the pursuit of it as the chief end of our existence is a sad and bad pursuit. Now, for the Christian believer, I think that there are things here pairing together with what the Lord Jesus says that you and I need to take away. Because hopefully we would say, I, I, don't, I don't see the dollar as my savior. So what should we take away from this here? Well, two reminders. One is, of course, that when we have been given much, much is required of us in terms of stewardship. We are to think of stewardship and not ownership. Think of this very clear reality. Using money as the illustration because this is the topic. Money, however much, money has been given to you by God so that you might use your money in such a way to make it plain that this thing, money, is not your ultimate treasure. God is. Now you can take that formulation and, and put it on everything, literally everything that God gives you. Money, your home, your children, your affluence, your responsibilities, right? Your wisdom, your honor, whatever. God gives you that as a gift for you to enjoy responsibly and to use it in such a way to make it plain that it's not your ultimate treasure. To use it responsibly as a steward to make it plain to the world that Christ is your greater treasure. 
Now, why does Jesus say then that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Jesus says it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. That's not because a certain amount of wealth necessarily precludes you from getting into heaven, right? Because if that were the case, listen, every single one of us would be precluded because Jesus said that in the first century when material wealth looks very different than our world today. So is Jesus saying that in the modern world to have possessions and have money in the bank account necessarily means that you will not get into heaven? Of course he doesn't mean that. But why does Jesus say that it's hard? Why does Jesus say that it is hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom? Because when you are of ability, when you have resources, you're used to providing for yourself, right? You're used to taking care of not only yourself, but others. You're used to having the ability within yourself to do and be and provide security. But that's not how the gospel works, is it? The gospel is not what we do for ourselves to provide salvation, but rather what God has done for us that we receive with empty hands. That's why Jesus says it's hard to enter the kingdom if your whole life is spent thinking my provisions, my ability, my wealth. That's hard. And so therefore, wealth, resources, money, affluence, prosperity are a trial then to prove our highest allegiance. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think as Christian believers we should apply and take away is that the way we go about doing that, the way we go about demonstrating to the world that money is not our ultimate treasure is seen by whether or not our ownership of things, whatever the things are, whether they come to own us. Whether our concept of ownership sees not stewardship, but rather ownership, and instead of taking dominion over all things, they take dominion over us and guide us, become our gods. Do the things that we have dominate us, or do we take dominion over them, namely to employ them for the service of the kingdom, the good of our family, the honor of God, the good of our community? Do we use these things to demonstrate that they don't have dominion over us, we have dominion over it, and choose to use it in such a way to honor the Lord by supporting the ministry of the gospel in the local church, by, by giving graciously to the things that God has laid before us, and thereby communicating we take dominion over it rather than it taking dominion over us. So it's clear, isn't it? That the preacher here in Ecclesiastes is speaking to those who are convinced that the more we can acquire, the more satisfied our life will be. The preacher is saying, it doesn't work that way. And if you chase it, it ends with both sorrow and badness, fear, distress. It cannot fulfill the void of the heart. His words here are timely for us who do trust the Lord, though also, who realize that we are called to live not for the gifts of God, but for the giver of the gifts, so that we might employ His gifts to demonstrate that He is our greatest treasure. And I think I've heard it said 
that to employ this principle of Jesus and this teaching of Ecclesiastes is never more challenging in an age as materially prosperous as ours. But that doesn't make it any less true. The challenge is, is will we as Christian believers rise to the understanding of how the gospel shapes our view of life, including wealth and affluence? In it is a spiritual test. May God give us the proper perspective. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you give, and yet we confess that they are not our ultimate joy. You are. The grace you have shown, your kindness and your mercy, and the forgiveness of our sins, the giving us of an inheritance in heaven. Lord, help us to weigh and balance our lives properly, that as we live in the world, we might also testify that there is a world yet to come. And so honor the Lord Jesus who has lived and died and risen for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.